Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. My guest today is Marjorie Woolacott, who is Professor Emeritus of Human Physiology and Neuroscience at the University of Oregon. Her research has been funded by the National Institutes of Health and includes both rehabilitation medicine and alternative forms of therapy such as Tai Chi and meditation. She's the president of the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences, one of the key partners of the Galileo Commission, and also research director of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. And she's written more than 200 peer-reviewed research articles, several of which were on spiritual awakening and meditation, which was the topic that motivated her to write her latest book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Marjorie, welcome. And tell us first about um, a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Well, in fact, to do that, I'm going to actually go back to when I was a young child, because I think that was really the start of it. And when I was a young child, my parents actually began to open up the magic of the universe for me. And they did that because they wanted to go back to nature after World War II. And they decided to buy this acre in sort of the countryside near the suburbs. And on that acre, they built their own house with their own hands, a little cottage. And um, literally, my mother was out there with a hammer, like, building the structure of the house with my dad. And then they decided to raise animals. So we had rabbits and we had chickens and we had two goats, we had a cow. And when I was little, I wanted to be a horse when I grew up because I loved animals so much. They told me it wasn't a career option, but they gave me a horse finally when I was in the seventh grade. So that was like the start of things. And then my dad loved books and art and he had a printing press. His hobby was actually printing. and. He took us to the library, my sister and I, every week on Friday evening, and we would go in and check out about 10 books and read them all week long, turn them in and get another 10 books the next week. And in fact, I learned to write my name at the age of four so that I could get my first library card. So my mother also loved outdoors and she loved music. And so I learned to, of course, love the um, land that we were living on and play out there all day, but also I started playing the flute and the, and the oboe at seven years of age. And I was in our elementary school, all city orchestra and continued on in music through in fact college. So that was an incredibly nurturing part of my life as a young child that made me thirst for the knowledge of the universe and really curious as all of these avenues were opened up for me for learning. So. I was thrilled by having those parents when I was a child and realized only now how lucky I was in how that could actually form my life. And then I also remember when I was like five or six years of age, I was outside one day with my sister and we were talking about God. And I said to her, if God does exist, then we should dedicate our lives to God. Now, I wasn't even sure exactly what God was. I mean, that's a big term, but somehow I had this sense inside my heart that this was very, very important. And I think that stayed inside of me at some deep level throughout my life as I continued to grow. And then there's another interesting moment that I just want to share, which was um, in the eighth grade, I was taking general science. And here I am in my general science class, and we're studying how ice turns to water and water turns to steam. And 
what happens at each temperature when they shift from one mode of being to another. And after I had written down my answer to the question and we had turned them all in, the teacher took me outside of the class for a moment. And that's a highly unusual thing for a teacher to do that. And he went out in the corridor with me and he said, Marjorie, he said, I want you to know that what you wrote was really, really clear and articulate. And I think that if you want to be a scientist when you grow up, you could be a scientist for a career. And I was a little bit startled because it just was a natural way for me to be speaking about these things, but it did keep the seed inside of me of that as an interesting career choice, perhaps. Yes, a galaxy yeah. of, of influences and fascinating um, early experiences. Thank you very much. Uh, yes. Moving on, um, was there an influential mentor uh, at an early stage in your life? I mean, you've mentioned the teacher, but maybe at university, did you have any any influential mentor or family friend that that was important to you? Absolutely. I mean, in this case, it was actually in high school, interestingly enough. And my teacher that was so influential was Mr. John O'Neill in the 11th grade for our American literature class. And he had graduated from the University of Chicago, where they were um, actually bringing out the great books program of the Western world at that time. And when we first arrived in class in September, he told all of us in the class, you know so little about literature in general. How am I ever gonna teach you about American literature? You need a background. So we said, I'm gonna take you back to the ancient Greeks. And so he started giving us um, the works of Plato and Socrates. And then we learned from many of the Western, of the books of the Western world. And he did something else that was very important. Every week we had to write a precy of an article from one of the major journals in the United States, like Saturday Review of Books, um, Harper's, um, Big Scientific American, etc. And so he was telling us, I'm going to make you a part of the intellectual stream. And my best friend and I would joke that we were becoming intellectual streamers at that time with a sense of understanding that there was a wide intellectual universe out there that we wanted to be a part of. So I think that was perhaps one of the more significant moments in my childhood of awakening me to this broader world of intellectual understanding. That's fascinating. And it reminds me of some teaching practice that I did where we were looking at 17th century tragedy, but we also went back to the corresponding play by Sophocles. So one could understand the relationship between Greek tragedy and, and 17th century tragedy. And did, did, did Mr. O'Neill give you any advice? Um, obviously he's a huge influence in your development, but do you remember anything he said that, that, that lodges in your mind? Well, definitely. I mean, first of all, he introduced me to William James because he knew I was interested in, in psychology. And he, in fact, um, introduced me to the varieties of religious experience. And I was reading those in the 11th grade. And that, I think, propelled me forward into my wanting to understand the mind and the brain. And I then went on to study the brain, partly because the mind seemed a little bit abstract to me, but I, being a, a scientific, scientist, perhaps by inclination, the concrete nature of the brain felt like something I could grab hold of and really understand at a deeper level. So that's why I think I went on into neuroscience itself. And William James, that's one book um, you've mentioned. And I, I remember reading that in Marburg in the sort of late 70s. And I've, I've got a huge shelf of William James and almost everything he wrote. But I wonder whether other books that were formative um, at that time as well, well, you know, I would say formative perhaps a little bit later on, and interestingly, relatively recently, one that was formative was the book Irreducible Mind by Ed Kelly and his colleagues at the University of Virginia. And the reason it was so influential to me is that being a neuroscientist, I knew an incredible amount of all of the theories of 
the brain and the mind and consciousness from a neuroscience perspective. But I'll even take a step back. What happened with Irreducible Mind is that my husband, Paul, actually ordered the book when he had heard about it from someone else. Um, in fact, it was Eben Alexander talking about his own near-death experiences. And Paul ordered it and found out it was 800 plus pages long. That wasn't what he really wanted to look into at that moment. So he put it over on my side table. And after a few months, I actually picked it up. I opened it up. And from the time I read the first paragraph, I could not put it down for more than a, a few moments because he talked about every single theory of neuroscience I had learned about as a graduate student. And he showed all of the flaws in these theories of neuroscience that say that basically the mind is produced solely by the activity of neurons in the brain. And then he went on in Irreducible Mind to talk about all of these other theories and the research behind them that was so, so strong. And so it opened me up to being really interested in near-death experiences, in mediumship, in other psi phenomena, in, in fact, cases suggestive of reincarnation, which I probably wouldn't have considered that strongly otherwise without having seen the evidence that Ed Kelly and his colleagues brought forth. No, it's an incredible book. And that, that whole series, the new one, Consciousness Unbound, we're going to be doing an event for a bit later in the year. Um, and look, looking um, at moments of insight in the development of your own work, um, and in, especially in relation to consciousness, what, what would you pick out there? Well, that's an interesting one. I think that it wouldn't be actually during my work, but it was an insight that came when, in fact, my sister invited me to a meditation retreat when I was just 30 years old, a young professor. And I was skeptical, but I was curious. And so I went to the retreat and in the first meditation, I had an experience that I had never had before in all of my years of being a scientist. And that is, I could feel this energy literally growing inside of my heart and beginning to spread throughout my whole being. And it was an energy that was I guess I would best describe it as a feeling of love and joy all rolled into one and then radiating out not only through me, but beyond me and giving me a sense of real connection with the whole universe, with everything around me. And the words that came to mind at that moment were, I'm home, I'm home. My heart is my home. And it was almost as if it was the first time I felt my heart meaning something more than just that organ, this pumping blood at a very, very deep level. And that started a whole new understanding for me of the nature of who I was and what the world was around me. And it started my curiosity about maybe the world is much more than what I see through the five senses. And I should say that it was a little bit difficult for a number of years because I was actually solidly a neuroscientist. And I wouldn't really even broach any of these subjects that work with any of my colleagues because I was worried about losing my credibility with them. And yet gradually over time, I felt I needed to put the two halves of my life together. And that's when I finally started doing research in the laboratory on meditation and Tai Chi and consciousness, and also then began to write my book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind, just so that for my own self, I could put these two halves of my life together and really understand how I could broaden my scientific perspective to include a broader understanding of consciousness. I think that's so important also for other neuroscientists to read and realize that there is a journey of life that's going on at the same time as their career. And this is the bigger context of what's going on. And then I'm, I'm wondering also um, about um, how your understanding of consciousness influences the way you live your life. Well, and that's a very interesting point, because I think that, in fact, William James said that the way you know whether somebody has actually 
had this new understanding is by transformations in their life. And I'd say, one of the first things I began to understand is the importance of silence in my life. And that is silence in order to access my own deeper creativity. And I should say that somebody that has a very strong intellect that's been developed throughout my life, it can get in the way of my creativity often. And I really need at times to have silence, being out in nature, pausing when I'm working to access that deeper, more poetic, creative part of me to really allow myself to express perhaps the best in me more fully rather than just that left side of my brain that's giving more the rational side of things. And the other thing I've noticed is that I've changed my attitude toward myself and others in a big way. And I should say that when I was a young scientist, I had two cats, I had a horse, I loved them dearly, but I thought of them a little bit like little machines with small brains inside of them. And I said, oh, my horse only has the brain the side of a walnut, you know, what does that mean? And I loved them dearly, but I reduced them to the activity of their brains. And what's happened to me now is that when I understand that consciousness is fundamental, I see these animals as having a brain the right size for how they interact motorically in the world, but they're much, much more than their brain in terms of their spirit and the way they interact with me. And I can say that about also the plants, the trees, the stars. And in fact, I sometimes laugh because when I'm out in the woods walking in those moments of stillness, I also spend a little bit of time talking to the trees and the plants. And when I get up at 5 a.m. in the morning to do my yoga and look out at the star-filled sky, I talk to the stars and say how beautiful they are. So there's this sense now that I truly feel connected in a much, much deeper way and therefore much more caring about this land and all this around it and its sacred nature. And so I treat it with the utmost respect, which I don't think I was quite so aware of when I was younger. Now I can see how important that is. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with Apila Colorado and Leroy Little Bear, when they said that animals are beings that move. And I often use that phrase now with our, our dogs and cats. And, and so it gives you a much richer notion of life, doesn't it? That, that you're living in a, a living universe, not a dead one, where you're, you simply, are relating in an abstract way to your surroundings. And yeah. Is there any other experience that, that comes to mind that, that was transformative um, in, in your life? Well, yes, I mean, actually writing that book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind, really transformed my life. And I don't think I was expecting it in the way that it did. What happened is that, as I said, I was writing it for myself and thinking others that have perhaps similar questions about life might also be interested in it. What I wasn't aware of is that because I was first and foremost a neuroscientist with a lot of credibility in the area of neuroscience that people would really listen to what I had to say as a neuroscientist who developed this broader understanding and curiosity about the world. And what it allowed me to do is to actually then give talks at various meetings around the world and meet other scientists with very similar interests and suddenly be part of this broader community of people that wanted to share this knowledge with young people, for example, that were early in their careers and help educate the public about the importance of this broader understanding of the nature of consciousness. And so it has opened me up to a whole new community in the world. And in fact, meeting yourself, for example, and interacting with you that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't written that book. And so now I have a whole new career where I'm writing articles on near-death experiences, after-death communication, and I love this increased knowledge and understanding that I have with my whole new set of colleagues in the world. 
Yeah, it, you, what you say actually reminds me not only of Ian McGilchrist, um, you know, with his book, The Master and His Emistry, and the fact his credibility comes from his qualifications and the fact that he was a fellow of all souls, but also Sir Alistair Hardy, who I met a long time ago, um, who founded the Religious Experience Research Unit after he retired from Oxford in 1969. And his father-in-law his father was Walter Garstang, who was also a fellow of the Royal Society. And he advised Alistair when he was a young man to make his name and career in biology and zoology. He became professor of zoology at Oxford and a fellow of the Royal Society. And, and then in his retirement, he could um, turn to the things that really interested him and, and actually, oddly enough, pursue the very questions and structure of understanding of William James, who was one of his great heroes as well. Well, and that brings me up at just one very interesting point, and that is that we just had a meeting in the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Material Sciences of our student section yesterday, and we were talking about how they could pursue their careers in consciousness in a way that would be successful. And one of the things we said was exactly what you were talking about. It's good when you're young to perhaps have two parallel modes of research, one that is very credible in science, for example, and then another one is that is your avocation that's about consciousness, because we aren't yet in a place in society society where if you just do your work from the beginning on the fundamental nature of consciousness that all your scientific colleagues will support you. So if you have both of those, it allows you to keep one going that gives you a certain, certainly a foundation with your colleagues, but another one that opens you and perhaps then up to a broader curiosity about the nature of consciousness and allows that to move forward at the same time. I think that's very good. That's a kind of twin track, isn't it? And so you, you, have a, you have something that's more official and, and, and then the things that you're really interested in fundamentally. Yes. And then is there, a, is there a proverb or quotation that, that you live by? This is a question I always ask my guests. Well, and there, there is a quotation that I only learned about a few years ago by um, a modern day mystic and his name is James Finley. And I highly recommend reading his books. And this is what he says about life, which I think is very important for those of us that see suffering in life. And we also see the mystical nature of life. And we wonder how can there be both? And this is what he said. He said, God is a presence that spares us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things. And when I hear that, and I'm going through some difficulty in life, I just remember that I am being sustained in all things, even as I may see one thing as bad or good or whatever, that that is the sustaining force that is so important. It's a little like the, um, the, the footprint story, you know, there's only one set of footprints and God was actually carrying you at the time. And that's why there's only one, one set of footprints. And then can you, can you give our listeners any reference in terms of books by James Finley? Because I don't know this name. Well, he wrote a book about James Merton. Um, is it James Thomas Merton? Merton. Tom, Thomas, thank Merton. You. Thomas Merton. Mm. And um, because he was actually a monk um, in that monastery where Thomas Merton um, lived for a number of years, I think the first six years um, of his adulthood before he went on to other things. And so that is one of the books that I really enjoyed as he's talking about his own experiences with Merton. And he's written a number of other um, interesting books and has given courses that you can get online at the Center for Action and Contemplation, the CAC that's in um, New Mexico. So that would be places to find more from him. How interesting. I mean, certainly Thomas Merton is one of my great inspirations as he is for, uh, for many people. And I, I have many of his books and his journals and 
reflections. So yes, that's also to be recommended. And then finally, Marjorie, is there any advice that you would give your younger self from where you are now? Well, you know, I think that the advice would actually be to follow what you truly love and what really gives you joy. And to be sure that you don't really deviate from that and let your heart truly in a sense, lead you along with your intellect as you move forward in life. I think that sometimes we don't want to be so conservative in terms of being proper that we give up the things that are most important to us in terms of our passions. And so for me, part of that was my music, but also that fascinating interest in the brain and the mind and how that creates who we really are. So follow your passion. I think that's very good advice. And then what's your favorite piece of flute music, just as a you know, uh, <laughs> you know, when you say that, I don't know that I would pick a particular piece per se, but I think what I would do is I would say it would be one of those pieces by Bach, which would be like a cantata where the flute or the oboe, which was my second instrument, is weaving in and out with the vo voice um, of the person singing the cantata that I love Bach and I love the, the way he uses flutes and oboes in all of that music. You're quite right. I can think of a passage from the Mass in B minor um, where, where that's, the, that's the case. So Marjorie, thank you so much for sharing your insights um, with us. Uh, on thank you, David. It was wonderful to talk with you. <laughs> thank you.